The Mind Itself is a podcast about mental health, mental health law, and how they affect all aspects of our daily lives. By taking a deeper dive into how our society deals with mental health medically, legally, and practically, listeners gain insight and information about one of America's most pressing and often overlooked issues that affects almost half of all adults in the United States. Hello, and welcome to the Mind Itself podcast. We're very excited today to join you with three of my colleagues from three different states uh, to talk about guardianships and conservatorships. You know, in my practice as a mental health law attorney, the strategies that I've employed to get help for those that need it in using litigation has primarily been guardianship conservatorships. So I really wanted to make sure that at one point we did an episode where we talked about that process in as many states as possible. And what better place to start than our beautiful DC metro area with three of the top attorneys in this field. First of all, we are pleased to welcome Julia Restigar, a Virginia lawyer who practices in the area of mental health law, doing guardianships and conservatorships. Julia, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here. Also excited to welcome David Mendez, a uh, experienced attorney who practices in, well, multiple states, but DC, he does a lot of this guardianship, conservatorship, mental health law work and elder law. Uh, David, thanks for being here. John, it's a pleasure. Look forward to talking with you. And finally, Rich Tappan. Rich is, uh, I've known Rich many years. He was uh, a participant in my mental health law clinic years ago and uh, have known him throughout the years as an excellent Maryland attorney doing guardianship conservatorship. Rich, that's great to see you again. It's great to have you here with us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here, John. Oh, oh, and by the way, to those of you listening, Rich was a attorney, law student practicing uh, as a third-year practice certificate holder in my mental health law clinic, not a participant in that. So he uh, did an excellent job and we became fast friends and really have enjoyed getting to know you over the years, Rich. Let's talk about the guardianship and conservatorship process. Like I said, the main avenue that I've used to get help for those uh, that need it and uh, that are mentally ill has been guardianships, conservatorships. And I've always described it to my clients as an imperfect solution to a really weak system, and, and, and especially in Virginia. Julia, let, let's start uh, with you. Virginia, well, first of all, what is a guardianship and conservatorship in Virginia and, and what's the, the process in general, how you get there? Sure. So a guardianship Commonwealth of Virginia uh, gives the guardian the authority to make certain kinds of decisions for the individual or the ward for whom that person is the guardian. These are generally decisions about uh, medical issues, decisions about where they live, decisions about treatment. A guardian is appointed when and if an individual is found to lack the capacity or the ability to make those kinds of decisions about their personal affairs. What about conservatorship, Julia? What, what, what's a conservatorship in Virginia? So similarly, it's when you have an individual who is no longer able to make decisions about their financial affairs. They lack the capacity to do so. So an individual can be both a guardian and a conservator. It doesn't have to be that way. Some, uh, a court may want to appoint two different people to do that. But so generally, guardians uh, make decisions about people's personal affairs. Conservators make decisions about their financial affairs. Now, Julia, as you know, guardianships and conservatorships are initiated by filing a petition for, for that. Tell us a little bit about that process. Uh, when you file your petition to be appointed guardianship, a guardian or conservator, 
for a mentally ill individual? What are the next steps that happen that someone can expect? Sure. So uh, first, that petition is filed in a circuit court, in the circuit court where the individual who is going to be the subject of the guardianship proceeding, wherever that individual lives, or if they have been moved to a hospital at some point, you know, where the last place they resided before they were moved to, to the hospital. It's, it has begun by a petition uh, in the circuit court. Uh, the petition doesn't require a whole uh, hell of a lot of information to get it started. Then once that petition gets filed with the circuit court, the court will appoint what's called a guardian ad litem. Guardian ad litem, who is generally on a list of attorneys with that particular area, and the guardian ad litem's job is to make sort of independent determinations about what is in the best interest of the person about whom the guardianship has been filed. You know, Julia, a lot of times mentally ill individuals don't believe that they are mentally ill. And that's, that seems to be one of the prevailing uh, problems we have, in the, at least in the Virginia system, that, that because it's so weak and it's that it really only treats the crisis situations when someone doesn't believe they're mentally ill and you have to force them into it, it, it makes it so much tougher. What if the person is of that, uh, if their illness uh, precludes them from acknowledging that they are in fact in need of treatment, what if they object to a guardianship conservatorship? What happens in that instance? Yeah, really good question. So um, in my experience, and um, I, I know David and Rich have similar experiences too, more often than not, the person uh, where the guardianship is for whom the guardianship is being sought does not want a guardian and conservator because you know once a guardian and conservator is appointed then your constitutional rights are taken away people are make there's an individual or individuals who make decisions for you i hate to bring this person up but because there's a really famous example britney spears for example she has a conservator she's had a conservator for a number of years and i think a year or two ago, she tried to terminate the conservatorship and, and that didn't happen. So the people who, for whom the guardianship or conservatorship is being sought, they generally don't want that to be happening. And this is one of the, the reasons why a court has to make that determination. Right. And oftentimes, uh, I don't know if it's in your experience, oftentimes in some of the larger jurisdictions, the court will actually appoint a lawyer in addition to the guardian ad litem to represent the mentally ill individual, uh, Julia. And have you ever had occasion to litigate those cases with both a guardian litem and an attorney at the same time? I have. And I, I'm sure David will go into this a little bit more in terms of uh, the differences between D.C., where I'm also a lawyer, but uh, D.C. and Virginia. So in, in Virginia, the guardian ad litem uh, is always appointed. The counsel, uh, the attorney for the subject is not always appointed. And there's kind of this weird wrinkle where there has to be a determination that the person needs counsel, needs an attorney to advocate for what he or she wants first in Virginia, uh, which is kind of a weird wrinkle. The guardian ad litem is always appointed, but the attorney for that person is not. And so, yeah, it it becomes, it can become, it often does become very litigious and very contested because, as I mentioned earlier, once that person's constitutional rights are taken away, it's pretty hard to get them back. Right. And then you add to that the requirement in Virginia that you have a physician certification by somebody who's licensed to diagnose mental health. You have a third person that now has to be involved as well. Tell us a little bit about that. What does it take 
uh, when you're when you're trying to prove that someone suffers from a disability that means that they're incapacitated, need a guardian conservator. What are the requirements in Virginia for that? What they call physician certification. Yeah, so you need to have the certification from an individual who has the ability to make these determinations. A physician has the ability to make these determinations. Generally, a, a psychiatrist or psychologist or geriatric. And they have to be able to essentially testify that the person lacks the capacity to make decisions about their personal affairs in the context of a guardianship or about their financial affairs in the context of a conservatorship. And I guess the sort of good news is there's a higher level of evidence required in these types of proceedings than in a normal civil case. The standard of evidence in Virginia, which is the same in DC, I'm not sure about Maryland, but is clear and convincing evidence that the person lacks the ability to make decisions about themselves. So David, uh, just switching gears for a little bit, Julia gave us a pretty thorough look at Virginia. How how does DC compare? Uh, Is it harder, easier, more complicated? Tell us about DC guardianships and conservatorships. Sure. Um, So I think, I don't know that I would say it was harder. I think there's a few key distinctions where DC the way they approach the case is different, and that has a, a very well may have a different impact for uh, what DC calls the subject. That's the person who you're trying to get a guardian for, right? Uh, one of the key distinctions which, which Julia was just touching on is that in, in Virginia, they always appoint a guardian in litem. Uh, in DC, they actually do the reverse. A guardian litem is sometimes appointed, but they always appoint the subject, the person who's maybe losing their rights, an attorney. And that's because from DC's perspective, that person has fundamental rights that are at issue, fundamental constitutional rights to make choices for their own life. And so just like in a criminal case, they have a right to counsel whether they can afford one or not. And that person's job is to both help that help the subject, the client, understand what's at issue, understand the impact of a guardian, understand how it will work for them, understand the strength of the case against them and how to defend against it if that's what they want and to counsel them. Um, and then, you know, if it's contested, if the person does not want a guardian or, or uh, they can't come to some sort of agreement where, so for example, in DC, they have lots of different ways to fashion a guardianship. So just because you're getting a guardian, it's not a, a binary or black and white decision that you lose all rights. They can have limited guardians that may just make decisions in certain areas. That's an, uh, a thing that we see often with folks with mental health. Uh, maybe they have schizophrenia and that um, in the end of the day, impacts their ability to do things like apply for benefits, manage their living situation, uh, and make some serious medical decisions. But there's a lot of what are called ADLs or activities of daily life that they can manage. What do they eat? Where do they dress? Where do they go? And so the guardian will have some authority to address things, but not total authority. So in, in DC, like I said, they always make a point of, you always get an attorney appointed for you. And the only time a guardian ad litem is appointed is if the person can't advise the lawyer. Because as lawyers, whether it's in a guardianship case or any other type of case, we don't get to make a decision for the person about what's best for their life. That's no different in a divorce case, in a personal injury case, in a criminal case. We're there to give advice and to help navigate and fight for them in the legal system. But ultimately, the client has to tell us what they want. So in these types of cases, because often they involve either serious mental health or disease related to age or injury. So for example, dementia where someone starts to kind of lose their ability to reason and be centered to the time and place, you might need a guardian ad litem because you, you as the lawyer who gets appointed by the court may go visit the subject 
and they can't talk because they're in a coma, right? So obviously if they're in a coma, you can't take a position from them and go tell the court. So you'd ask for a guardian ad litem to be appointed and then they would make what's called a best interest determination, which is to decide looking at all the factors, what's in the best interest of that person. And then the case could go forward. Yeah, I think that's really interesting that DC treats it so differently because in my experience, I'd say maybe 50% of the time in Virginia, they appoint attorney in addition to a guardian ad litem. It's only when the mentally ill individual vigorously objects that they kind of appoint the attorney. But, you know, and, and, and Julia, uh, just going back to Virginia for a second, David mentioned that there's a range of possibilities with a guardianship and conservatorship. Is Virginia the same? In other words, can you have a degree of guardianship? In other, in other words, if someone doesn't quite need absolute incapacity and absolute control over their affairs, can there be partial guardianships or limited guardianships? Yeah, uh, good question. So in Virginia, similarly to DC, you can also have the limited guardian or limited conservator uh, where the court will, uh, in the order appointing those individuals, pick specific things that that person is going to help with, uh, because otherwise it just falls under the guardianship law or the conservatorship law that lays out what a guardian or conservator is allowed to do. So in the context of those limited ones, that's one way to sort of fashion it, like David was saying, where the person has can make some decisions in some areas and maybe cannot in others. And I think uh, because you know litigation is required to get to the end result, I think that can be and, and is in some instances sort of middle ground, uh, kind of like a settlement where the parties will agree that maybe we just go with a limited guardian or a limited conservatorship and because, you know, as we've all been saying, once your rights are fully taken away, then they're, they're gone uh, until or unless you regain capacity, which for a lot of people will never happen. Now, David, in Virginia, uh, you, you can have a jury trial, which rarely, if ever, happens. Generally, it's, it's a judge that makes the decision. And the interesting thing about D.C., where generally it's a, a, an attorney who's the advocate for the individual whose rights are being potentially taken away. Does that lead to more often than not having a trial? Because I guess the ethical duty of the attorney would be if the person objects, they got to fight it, right? And does that lead to more litigation? Because in Virginia, it's just not the case. A lot of times guardianships are agreed to because the guardian item recommends it and the person either consents to it or doesn't know the difference. So in my experience, I don't think it does. And, and there's probably a particular, if it was just left open to kind of any attorney being appointed randomly um, as counsel for the subject, that might be the case. Um, but in D.C., there's a, a standing group, standing panel of vetted and trained attorneys for mental health proceedings. That's called the uh, Probate Fiduciary Panel. Um, I was a past member, actually, uh, Julia and Rich, have all, uh, we've all both been members in the past. Uh, I think Julia's still a current member. And what that means is that um, as opposed, because mental health cases in really for myself as an attorney, I practice in this area, but I've practiced in lots. I was a criminal prosecutor, I've done civil litigation. I've worked with clients of many different backgrounds. And mental health is a special thing uh, because your ability to reason with your client really requires a specialized approach, especially whether it's because they're suffering from dementia, but they still have, you know, maybe they're in the early stages and it's hard for them to appreciate the effect their disease is having on their ability to make decisions, or it's due to mental health. It takes some specialized training and some experience to be effective. But what I see in, in practice is because the attorneys that are serving your counsel as counsel for these folks in cases do this all the time, 
they understand the benefits of guardianship and they have a pretty good idea of who would benefit from it. So pragmatically, what that means is if the attorney really thinks that the client will benefit from it, they'll try and help them understand that because they're looking out, they want a good outcome, right? Everyone who's involved in this in DC, in my experience, by and large, really it's coming from the right place and wants to see uh, these vulnerable people who are in the system uh, for guardianship have their lives improve. And for many of them, a guardian is a good thing because they will help them to stabilize. They'll help them to get benefits. They'll protect them from being exploited by uh, maybe other people in their environment, particularly is true of older folks who have uh, maybe people who are trying to take advantage of them financially. There's a lot of benefit to them. And pragmatically, there's not always a lot of difference in their day-to-day life. The guardian's not going to stand over them and say, hey, you have to brush your teeth with this toothpaste, or you have to only wear these clothes or those kinds of things. There's still a lot in their day-to-day life they get to do. So yeah, so I don't think it leads to more litigation. When there is litigation, it can be lengthy and contentious, can be multi-day trials for sure. But in many cases, there's some sort of mediated resolution through the process of the case coming forward. Rich, let's, uh, I don't want to neglect Maryland, the, uh, the great state of Maryland here uh, in the discussion and being that, you know, the DC metro area really encompasses, well, these three states and more actually. Tell us about how Maryland guardianships and conservatorships differ from DC and Virginia. Thank you. I must say, I agree. Uh, we are a great state. And uh, although DC and Virginia are fantastic, uh, we've got the best crab cakes. Always to remember that. Crabs, cakes, and football. That's what Maryland does, right? Absolutely. Well, listen, there's many more similarities and differences, uh, especially between D.C. and Maryland, when it comes to guardianships and conservatorships. Biggest difference is the terms that are used. So, for example, guardian and conservator are the terms used in Virginia and D.C. to describe someone who's responsible for decision-making for the person itself and decision-making for the person's property. Uh, In Maryland, it's actually called guardian of the person and guardian of the property, which they serve the exact same functions, just a different name. You are appointed counsel uh, once the petition is filed. And think of it this way, right? I mean, people are losing some of their rights. And so they're entitled to having uh, having representation. If they have their own attorney, they can continue to use that attorney. It's come up in cases before where... One attorney was appointed as counsel and the uh, alleged disabled person, which is the same thing as the subject in D.C., just a different name. Uh, They might have had their own attorney. And there's questions in the court as to whether or not that attorney was really representing that person's best interests or if they were perhaps had a nefarious intent from a a family member or close friend. and, And really what they were trying to do was against this person's interests. Different judges do it in different ways. Sometimes the the judge will appoint counsel, and that uh, appointed counsel is going to have to serve along with the retained counsel. In other instances, they might have uh, a mini hearing or a mini trial as to whether or not uh, it's going to be in this person's best interest to have uh, their own appointed counsel uh, or the one that they retain. Uh, Similarly, the DC, two certificates of incapacity are required. Uh, One needs to be from a licensed physician. The other one can be from a mental health professional or a licensed physician. They both have to be done within 21 days. All the interested persons need to be served. One of the most common mistakes that attorneys make in Maryland is they don't serve all the interested people. Courts will kick these out and 
appointed counsel, they know about it and they know to challenge this and you might wind up having to start from square one. Preponderance of the evidence is the standard that's used. And uh, alleged disabled person can ask for a jury uh, for the, the guardian of the person, but uh, they're not guaranteed one for a guardian of the property here. Then there's a priority of appointment, uh, which you might imagine is going to be a family member or a spouse. Showing a good cause can be used to have someone other than a family member appointed. This could be because perhaps the family member is themselves laboring under a psychological condition, or it could be because, uh, unfortunately, sometimes family members are not having the person's best interest. And one of the things that I've always struggled with in a guardianship conservatorship is in Virginia, especially, it doesn't allow you to forcibly medicate or hospitalize somebody for treatment. In other words, you spend all this time litigating and proving that someone is disabled, incapacitated, and yet it really doesn't let you, as a guardian in, in Virginia or uh, of the person, it doesn't let you forcibly medicate them to try to treat them or, or put them in psychiatric, inpatient psychiatric treatment. Is that different in D.C. or Maryland, gentlemen? It's the same. And, you know, there's, there's powers and responsibilities that come along with uh, being the guardian of the person. You need, additional, you need an additional court order to forcibly medicate or do something severe against the person's interest. Now, Rich, in Maryland, does that, is that court order obtained in the guardianship process or is it a separate process? It's a separate process. You can ask for it in conjunction with the initial hearing. But uh, it can also be done down the road. And look, from a practical standpoint, the guardian of the person might not want to ask for that power initially. Uh, they might want to try and work with the disabled person themselves, right? I mean, you want to use the, the and, and the court actually mandates this in D.C. and Maryland. You have to use the least restrictive measures possible, okay? Right. And the ideal scenario is once you're appointed someone's guardian, you then work with that person to try and get them to agree to uh, the treatment. And maybe there is an alternative, right? I mean, you know, maybe, you know, the, the medication that uh, one physician thinks is best for them isn't the best. You know, maybe get them a second opinion. A, a guardian could uh, take the person to uh, another doctor, get a second opinion. And then, you know, if that doctor says the exact same thing. They can have a moment of clarity where they say, oh, okay, you know, two doctors did say this, and I trust this guardian who's gone out of his way to take me to two different doctors, and, you know, maybe I'll go ahead and agree to it. It's going to facilitate a better relationship between the person and their guardian. Look, you don't want to force someone to do something against their will unless it's absolutely, there's no other way around it. And David, I assume it's the same in, in D.C. You, you can't forcibly medicate or hospitalize somebody in a guardianship process? It depends. So, so yeah, so, so I agree with Rich that you need a court order um, if you're going to do it. You can't forcibly medicate someone in, in many cases, um, e even if you would agree to it, the medical facilities are very hesitant, hesitant to do it, even if the guardian, you know, kind of, there, there's some way in which they might uh, be willing to. But pragmatically speaking, in D.C., for example, it can be very hard to get someone the care they want if they're in the community and they don't want it. You know, so for example, you might have a, a, an elder parent who's living alone, is not safe anymore. Maybe they have uh, dementia or health health issues, or they're not taking their medications, which puts them at risk. Uh, and 
you, you go through all the trouble to get a guardian appointed and they're not going to leave their house uh, unless they're forced out. Well, you don't want to force them out. You don't want to kind of take them against their will uh, because pragmatically they may very likely get injured and you're going to make the situation worse. So in some cases, what you end up having to do is wait until they are hospitalized for some other medical treatment. And then the guardian has the power to refuse discharge from a hospital home if they believe it's not safe. And through that, you can discharge someone directly to a skilled nursing facility or an assisted living, something that they may have needed, but would have refused if you tried to go direct. But Julia, correct me if I'm wrong, there's a provision in Virginia law that even though you can't forcibly medicate or, or force hospitalization, isn't there something in Virginia law that allows a guardian to make a particular decision in an emergency commitment process? Uh, in other words, a provision that allows them to make some decisions when it comes to emergency commitment if a person is facing actual, an actual crisis that could lead to hospitalization? Yes, I, I believe that is uh, part of the civil commitment process in the, um, the, either the temporary eight-hour uh, version of that or the, the 72-hour version, and that's for emergencies. And you know, similarly, I think in D.C., there's a process that the police can initiate uh, where a guardian, actually a guardian's consent isn't necessary in, in an emergency, but the police can initiate a process where there can be a 72-hour hold for an individual in a psychiatric emergency. Right. And there's an interesting provision of Virginia law also that that I've used many times, and I always make sure is in my guardianship orders, that if a person is, and, and, and Rich, Rich has fought many battles uh, with me on this uh, over the years um, in the commitment process, this is uh, a provision of Virginia law that says, if you go before a what's called a special justice and you're facing commitment, and you already have a guardianship order against you, your guardian can actually decide to put you in the hospital for a maximum of 10 days. And I'm wondering, uh, David and Rich, is there something similar in Maryland or DC that allows, if you're in the emergency commitment process, the guardian can make a decision at least to put you in the hospital for some period of time? So, uh, Richard, you feel free to correct me if you, if you differ, but in my experience, my understanding of the process in DC is there's really only two ways in which you can get someone in an emergency commitment. The guardian doesn't have that power to answer your question, John, even in that kind of setting. It is uh, either, as Gia mentioned, you can do something through the D.C. Police Department, the Metropolitan Police Department called an FD-12 proceeding, which is your kind of emergency psychiatric hold, or you can contact uh, D.C.'s Department of Behavioral Health. They can come out on an emergency basis with social workers, and it's solely their power to deem to commit someone to a mental institution uh, at that point, and they'll do that. Uh, it's a pretty high standard. I, I've been in that situation with clients and family before in situations that seemed terrible, uh, and it was not enough for the Department of Beha Behavioral Health, so we were kind of left without any immediate options to get help for that person. Well, one of the things that I run into a lot in guardianship conservatorships, and, and I'd love to hear your all's thoughts on it, is people already have a power of attorney. Uh, a lot of people do their, their state planning or whatever, for whatever reason, they have a, a medical power of attorney or, or uh, advanced medical directive, as they're called in Virginia sometimes, which allows them to make decisions that a guardian would be allowed to make. Uh, Julia, in Virginia, does a, a power of attorney have any impact on getting a guardianship or limiting a guardianship or, any, or a conservatorship? Yes. So if there is a power of attorney or a POA in place, um, the court is supposed to you know, allow that to continue unless that individual, that power of attorney, is not 
sort of fulfilling their duties in in the best way that they're supposed to. I think practically speaking, and I'll let David and Rich talk about this in DC and Maryland, practically speaking, different institutions can be difficult um, and squirrely about accepting powers of attorney, whether those are financial ones or whether they are, you know, a, a medical one or healthcare power of attorney or advanced medical directive. Although they're supposed to, and although the law, these are created by law and, and there's provisions about what someone has the authority to do or not do, just in my own experience, uh, financial institutions can be very, very difficult and very squirrely about accepting them, even if they're completely, you know, properly executed because they are not court orders, unlike guardianships or conservatorships, you know, from a practical perspective, the financial institution, if there's a court order that says this person is the conservator, well, now they feel a lot safer because there's, that person is usually under an insurance policy or a bond if they do something wrong. But if there's just a financial power of attorney, well, there's a lot of cases where, you know, they're, well, they're easy to make. Uh, anybody can sort of create one online these days. And so institutions feel not as strongly about those as they as they would have to under guardianships and conservatorship. So sometimes it just becomes a practical issue uh, of even if you have the power of attorney in place, practically speaking, sometimes, uh, unfortunately, you know, for various reasons, it, the guardianship and conservatorship is kind of the gold standard. Right. And, and I tell clients, even if you have a power of attorney, that very issue that you just talked about, uh, institutions or, or, or hospitals not accepting the power of attorney, you really need a guardianship conservatorship. And under the old law, when I first started practicing, the court actually favored keeping the power of attorney in place and you know, reluctantly doing a guardianship only or conservatorship only if necessary. But sort of once Virginia adopted the Uniform Guardianship Conservatorship Act, uh, it really changed. And I haven't had any issue with judges granting guardianships and conservatorships, even with powers of attorney. David, what, what's the situation like in DC? Do you have the same problem where you really should pursue a guardianship and conservatorship for someone because powers of attorney may not be accepted? Yeah, so, so my, my experience, I think, is very similar to um, what you discussed. Um, de- definitely, if you have a power of attorney or you have one existing, which is very common, I mean, I, I can say that a lot of times when I am representing a family member or an adult child uh, in a guardianship proceeding to file the petition, a lot of times they come and what triggers them deciding they need a guardianship is mom or dad or their disabled child, more, more commonly with the parents, right? Because if it's a disabled child, usually the parents uh, have been working on that their whole life since the kid was born. But when, when their mom or dad gets sick or gets dementia and they try and use this power of attorney, a lot of times, um, whether it's financial institutions, hospitals, nursing care, anything, uh, you know, really that they struggle to get those honored. It's very haphazard. In my experience, particularly when it comes to banks, big banks, uh, like Bank of America is notorious for this. Um, they all tend to use a centralized compliance center somewhere in the United States, and they're not very familiar with local laws and forms. And so all the time, even after you have, a, even with a power of attorney, they won't accept them. And even once you have a conservatorship and a court order, I have r- routinely had to get involved for clients after they're the conservator for their mom or dad and send threatening letters to the banks to make them comply with the court orders. Uh, it's really unfortunate that they're so difficult about it, but it is, is the norm. It is no Rich, different what about in Maryland. Maryland. It is no different in Maryland. It is the most frustrating thing I have ever experienced to try and get a bank to accept the power of attorney. They're supposed to do it. 
by law, they're obligated to do it, but 19 times out of 20, they will not accept it. They will, they will accept the uh, letters of guardianship. It can take them a few days. They have to run it through legal. And just as David suggested, a lot of times you do have to follow back up with them, even with uh, the guardianship and the conservatorship. I think a power of attorney is fantastic. Uh, it's, it's always a good thing to have. The delay that we're experiencing with COVID in the courts right now, you never know how long it's going to take before you can get in front of a judge to get the letters of guardianship or conservatorship issued. So a lot of times what I'm doing for clients now is starting them off with a power of attorney and then filing the petition uh, for the guardian of the person on the property. This way, at least, look, if it takes a few months to get before a judge, at least in the meantime, they have something uh, to try and use to get, uh, look, what if the person needs a, a an emergency healthcare situation. What if a person gets COVID? Uh, what if they need uh, to get bills paid to keep their heat up, right? So, you know, it's the power of attorney is something that is useful, but ultimately you're going to want the, the guardianship of the person and the guardianship of the property or the guardian conservator, depending on your location. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. And, and, and even as David said, you still might need an attorney's help to get a bank to accept even the letters of guardianship or conservatorship. And, and John, can I can I bring up one thing about power of attorneys, which I think, please, uh, many times when people get a power of attorney or they do one, again, I'm I'm really talking in this case mostly with elder elderly parents or parents as they age, they'll sign the power of attorney because they want help, right? They they recognize that you know they could use their son or daughter, or family, close friends help to navigate some of the bill pays or mortgage or different things that are going on. But once the power of attorney starts to make some decisions that maybe the elderly parent doesn't like, or they feel like they're losing some of their independence. We're, we're quite frankly, again, a lot of these cases in my experience come up particularly with dementia, where someone is in the early stage of being forgetful and losing some of their memory and their ability to be centered. Uh, and as it progresses, they forget that they had a power of attorney or they change their mind. And the thing about power of attorneys is they're very easy to revoke, at least in the District of Columbia. And so you think you have this whole plan, you pay an attorney to do a power of attorney, you think, it's set, and then uh, mom or dad changes their mind, and they tell the bank or they tell the nursing home, "Hey, I revoke. I'm I'm out of here." I, I had a case like this just actually uh, earlier this year. Mom was single, widowed, lived in D.C. Daughter lived out of state, and they made a whole plan because mom was aging, starting to get dementia. Did a power of attorney, moved mom into a very nice assisted living, had her all set up. Daughter was paying her bills and starting to repair her house for sale because mom had let it had holes in the roof, had had things happen as she kind of aged in place. Uh, and mom decided after about three months that she was not no longer on board for living in assisted living and wanted to go home. So she uh, told the nursing home staff, the assisted living staff, that she revoked the power of attorney. She called the DC authorities and made a lot of claims against her daughter. Uh, claimed she never signed the power of attorney, even though it was witnessed and notarized, and she got up and left. And then the daughter was trying to deal with this from you know, a thousand miles away and, and kind of left hanging and had to go through the guardianship process much more unplanned way. And John, um, I just want to add on to, to what David and Rich were saying. You know, I, as I've told clients in the context of estate planning documents, powers of attorney are useful until they're not. And, you know, oftentimes that's when an emergency happens when you really need them to be useful. But another thing that came to mind specifically about the financial control over finances is, you know, a power of attorney, a financial power of attorney is not intended to remove 
the individual's rights from their bank accounts, for example. So you have a power of attorney who comes and adds onto a bank account. It's not in any way intended to remove the original person's, the subject's ability to access their bank accounts. And in a lot of cases, that can be dangerous because often what happens with uh, family members who are elderly, um, a lot of times there are other, you know, bad actors, shady uh, characters who get involved in their lives and divert some of their money for their own purposes. And so if you have a power of attorney situation where you have, you know, let's say mom or grandma and is on a bank account and you're the power of attorney, well, if you have some caregiver or, or neighbor who comes in and starts influencing that person, well, then mom or grandma can, their entire bank account can be wiped out. When you have a conservatorship in place, there's only one person who has access to that bank account, and that's the conservator. So the conservator effectively takes over the bank account, and it prevents the original person from having access to their funds. And in a lot of cases, that becomes really important because you have financial exploitation of the elderly, unfortunately. Well, I think the moral of the story here is get a guardianship and conservatorship. Don't rely solely on a power of attorney, as useful as they may be. Let me switch it up a little bit. One of the things that I found over the course of my career, and, and I've been doing these mental health cases for close to 20 years, many people think that guardianships and conservatorships are just that tool that you use you know, at the end of life uh, for an elderly person, an elderly parent or grandparent or sibling or spouse. Uh, and you, you, you sort of, it's sort of been pigeonholed as, as an elder law type situation. Most people don't think about using this, for example, for a 25-year-old schizophrenic person who uh, might need assistance with their medical care, their personal care, and, and, and their control of assets. It, is the same true in uh, your experience, gentlemen? In other words, have you used guardianships for all ages, for all, all types of disabled uh, individuals, not just the elderly? Yes. Most commonly, this is used for elderly people, right? Because of uh, advancements in medicine, people are routinely living into their 80s. Their mind or their brain has more time in its lifespan to experience vascular dementia and Alzheimer's and, and all these sorts of things. This is why this is a growing body of law. This is why people are starting to pay more attention to it. But uh, if you're the parent of a mentally ill child, you need to absolutely make sure that on their 18th birthday, you're filing for the guardianship and the conservatorship to continue protecting them. So Rich, that's a really super important point. So in other words, if your son or daughter suffers from Down syndrome or other mental disabilities that preclude them from making decisions for themselves on their person and their, and their property, your suggestion is on that 18th birthday, have a guardianship and conservatorship in place in Maryland. Absolutely. Think of it this way. If this person is laboring under a mental disability, Oftentimes, that might have been caused by uh, an accident uh, or, or even an intentional act, and they could have, they could have uh, won some money. They could have won a judgment. Well, that, that money's going to be kept in trust until a person turns 18. Well, the second they turn 18, if you don't have something in place to get them a guardian or conservator, you have a mentally ill person who's liable to dissipate their assets that they're going to need for care for the rest of their lives. So there's a lot of very important reasons. It should be on every parent's radar. If you have a mentally ill child, if you have a child with uh, diminished intellectual capacity, 
you absolutely need to have this on your radar and ready to go for their 18th birthday. David, I would assume that you'd give the same advice to parents of disabled children in DC, right? I, I would. And, and I think that like you brought up a good point about someone with schizophrenia. So for myself, I have an aunt who's now passed away who suffered from schizophrenia. And it's one of the things that makes it such a difficult disease for, for anyone, but for families is that your son or daughter, or your sister, or your brother, they live a very normal life uh, until, you know, many times they're in their late teens or into their mid twenties. And then unfortunately they begin to lose their mind. And so even if you don't plan for it at 18 and that happens where you have a family member who starts to have that, one of the things the guardian is really powerful for is helping to give structure, right? What I saw in uh, speaking about my own experience in my own family uh, was the difficulty in helping to keep my aunt stable and helping her to stay on a treatment plan so that she could have the medications to be pretty functional in life. And when she would go off of them, since there was no guardian, no one to help render care or get people more involved, and she would go through very difficult periods of time. My aunt's case, ultimately, you know, it, it was one of those periods of times where she was uh, unmedicated and really decompensated and ended up, you know, committing suicide. Uh, so these things can be life-saving tools for people and they should be something you strongly consider. And Julia, I know you'll agree with me that that's absolutely the advice to parents of disabled children in Virginia. Is there any difference between a guardianship and conservatorship for someone who's coming out of juvenile stage into adulthood and filing for guardianships and conservatorships at other stages of life? I mean, the guardianship uh, statute, the conservatorship statute applies. And so kind of whatever powers or, or, or authorities, duties that a guardian and conservator have apply across the the ages um, across the age you know, life lifespan of an individual. So are there practical differences for someone who say is turning 18 and is under uh, intellectual disability? Sure. And you know, one of the areas where the guardian or conservator might be able to help out at a younger age is, for example, putting together a special needs trust for their child uh, who has an intellectual disability or mental illness. But you know, in terms of what they're authority is in terms of what the law allows them to do, the guardianship or conservatorship statute that says what they can, what they can do and what they cannot do. Well, and I would, I would just add to that, that you can file in Virginia, and I'm sure it's probably the same, David and Rich in Maryland, DC, you can file for a guardianship while your child is still a juvenile. So it's ready to go on their 18th birthday. So you don't miss a beat and continue to have the kind of control you need over a disabled individual. Just to, just to wrap up, gentlemen, and, and, and this has been an incredibly useful discussion. We could literally talk about this all day and tell war stories. Um, can you each give me an example of a novel issue during a guardianship and conservatorship case that you've encountered in each state that might uh, strike a chord with someone listening to this podcast? Uh, David, what about in D.C.? What, give me a, an interesting story about a guardianship or conservatorship or mental health case that you've had. So I had a very interesting case with a gentleman where he had a uh, long-term wound. He, he had had a wound on his leg due to diabetes for a long time. Family member was trying to get medical care for him uh, because he, he, for his own reasons, was terrified of, of having surgery. Uh, obviously something we can relate to without having mental health, but maybe difficult to rationalize. Uh, and we actually ended up having a whole trial on this guardianship. And at the end, 
the judge determined that he did not need a guardian, that even though maybe many of us would make a different choice than he did uh, in terms of medical care, he had a right to make that choice. And so I share that, that antidote because I think sometimes guardianship can get a bad rap uh, that people really don't have due process and that their rights are just taken. And in my experience, personally, at least in the District of Columbia, the courts and the judiciary um, take people's rights very seriously. And uh, it's really important if, if you think someone in your life needs a guardian, uh, it's going to sound sort of self-serving to say this, but I say it pragmatically. You need to hire an attorney because you really do have a burden of proof. Uh, and you can have something that on its face looks like you absolutely would, that should, that should be a slam dunk, should be easy. You should be able to get the help you need. But because you don't put it forward in the right way, it may not be seen that way by the judge. Uh, and then you're left without that guardianship. On the flip side, if you try and you're not successful, then it may be that you know that person really does have the ability to make the choices, even if they're not the choices you or I would make. You know, it's, it's, a, it's amazing. I had the exact same issue in, in, in Fairfax County, and the court did uh, enter a guardianship with a, a, a diabetic with, with leg injury, just an incredible, incredibly difficult disease. Julia, you have any uh, good war stories in Virginia that, that might strike a chord? Yes, I had an individual who was in the early stages of dementia, and I was her counsel, so representing what she wanted rather than sort of my own belief about what should be happening. And she was adamantly, very, very strongly opposed to having a guardian and conservator appointed. And, you know, this is a, a David and, and I think Rich touched on dementia, but dementia is such a terrible disease. And this was the early stages of dementia. And she was, inc- she is incredibly bright, uh, very well-educated woman with an excellent memory in a lot of ways. You know, the first time after I met her the first time and I saw her the second time, she was able to you know, remember my full name where I had studied trees, you know, the names of my parents and my backstory, you know, much better memory, short-term memory than I had. But the sad part was her judgment and her sort of decision-making, executive decision-making function was starting to go, had started to go. And so she was in a situation where she lived uh, in a home by herself, but couldn't uh, walk. Um, And so she couldn't get herself to the restroom and she was in a wheelchair. And so, you know, but then when you talk to her, uh, as smart as she was, and as great as her memory was in a lot of ways, she couldn't tell me how we were going to make the kinds of decisions about rearranging her uh, the structure in her house so that she could take care of her basic needs and you know, ultimately we had a, a two-day trial on it and the judge i think had a really difficult time with that one but ultimately a guardian and conservator was appointed but you know, i think that that case really demonstrated to me just what a terrible disease dementia can be and and just how difficult it can be in right. the early stages for the person who has dementia because they don't realize that they can't make certain decisions anymore because you know in other ways they're perfectly fine but in some ways in, in their judgment their judgment goes they don't realize that rich what about your practice in either maryland or dc what, what have you seen out there i've got several stories but i'm, I'm going to tell one that's a cautionary tale of why we all need to keep an eye on our parents. And if we see them in the early stages of dementia, to start looking at guardianship and conservatorship early on. A young lady came to me, uh, unfortunately, a little bit late in the game. She knew her mom was uh, developing some some of the early stages of uh, vascular dementia. And uh, you know, she, but she didn't want to take away her mom's rights, right? I mean, in her mind, she thought, okay, you know, mom, she's got some issues, but I want to have her 
you know, make her own decisions. She traveled to California for six months. And when she came back, she found out that her, her elderly and wealthy mother uh, had not had moved not one, but two boyfriends into her house. And of course, the boyfriends had gotten her to change her will. They'd begun to siphon off her bank accounts. They'd gotten their, their names as uh, people uh, transfer on death on the deed. You know, it's and, and at this point, they'd so worked their way into her mom's psyche that the mom didn't want to have anything to do with her daughter. At least this is what she was saying. Right. I mean, and so it, it took uh, we had to go to trial. It took quite a bit of work. But, uh, you know, we managed to wind up saving a, a lot of what uh, a lot of the money that should have ultimately been used for her mother's care. Uh, and, and so, again, folks, uh, keep an eye on your parents. Look into filing guardianship and conservatorship early. Get a power of attorney as soon as you can, but then absolutely take that next step. It's critically important. Outstanding. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much uh, for for joining me today. This has been, like I said, I could talk about this all day. I, I, nothing more interesting to me than mental health issues and mental health cases and this crisis that we're in in our society and even in these three states being you know, no no exception to that. Gentlemen, there is an, a number that you all can be reached at if anybody has any questions for you or wants to talk to you about a guardianship. Can you guys give me your, your, the number to reach you and, and how a client can get a potential client can get in contact with you? So my number, uh, and I think you can reach all three of us at this, is uh, 571-888-5903. I'll say it again, 571-888-5903. Thank you, David. Thank you so much. And, and uh, Rich, Julia? David, thank you so much for lending your expert, uh, expertise today on this conversation and looking forward to having you back here pretty soon. Thanks, John. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. The Mind Itself podcast is unique in that we look at the intersection between mental health and the law and how it impacts you. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave a comment, rate, and review and share with someone you know. Thanks for listening.